morning I was um, tr- trying to lay the, uh, the foundation for what I was suggesting, which w- would be, oh yes, here we go again. I'm doubly mic'd. You know, perhaps by Thursday I'll be able to get a hang of it. I can move it and you don't have to jump up every time. When, yeah. uh, for a, a, lasting, a lasting motivation uh, for, for uh, missions, for our own practice uh, in, in evangelism, pers- personal evangelism, sharing Christ and the gospel of Jesus Christ with our neighbors, with our family members who, who do not uh, know him as Lord and Savior uh, in, in work or wherever. And it was my suggestion that uh, there are many pr- uh, proper motivations for evangelism, but they would fall short of being lasting and sufficient unless they would grow up out of, personally, the soil of a, a, a deep and abiding love for the Lord Jesus Christ, a desire to be uh, in his presence daily, to walk with him in, in lovely uh, union, in communion of, of the faith, and also then, because of our, our relationship with him, then to make him known uh, to those that he brings into our lives. A uh, heartfelt love for Jesus and with it a jealousy for the glory of our mighty God. So we were looking to our God as king and, of course, moving towards uh, the Lord Jesus Christ as the coming one, the king who would come, the scriptures always spoke of, that God had promised graciously, even though Israel looked for unfaithfully. Israel was looking for an out that she could be like the nations. God graciously gives her what she asked for because of his greater purpose. God, they, Israel meant it for evil. God meant it for good. And then the king of kings comes in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, this is family camp, and uh, there's two things that a minister as a father, on the father's side of it, can't do. And because it's a family camp, my family's here. There's, I, at least I found out in the Crone family, there's two things I can't do as dad. One is uh, sing in public. <laughs> I can't sing in stores when I'm shopping. I used to be able to, but then along came the kids and a certain age. Actually, when they were young, they'd sing along with me, but then all of a sudden, Dad, we're going into the store now. Please don't sing, okay? And I usually try to work out some kind of agreement. May I whistle? No, Dad, you'll embarrass us if you whistle. Okay, well, as soon as we get back in the van, I'm going to start singing again. Uh, The other thing that you cannot do, you can't cry. You can't cry in public. You can't sing if you're dad and you can't cry. And I'm kind of comfortable with the second one, you can't cry. You know why that is, don't you? Because you can't cry in public and you can't cry in baseball. There's, there's no crying in baseball. I'm sorry, all these remote allusions to baseball. Uh, so, such will be the case. I will do my best. But if, I, if I'm able to get to where we're going in this, and that you would see your king, and behold your king, and what he's done for you, and that would inspire in you a zeal to make him known, and, and a pain in your heart, when you see the Lord and the King being robbed of his glory day after day, then there's, what happens is what comes to the fore is the very emotional element of our faith. There is an emotional link, is there not? When we, when we recognize who we were, who we are in ourselves, and how it is that God, the Lord Jesus Christ, died for ungodly sinners such as ourselves. So I'm going to have to be careful this morning and... Uh, you know, keep a stiff upper lip. But I might as well go ahead and tell you, um, in my own personal life, there have been times where I've been unable to control myself emotionally. As a matter of fact, in Team Baja, the more tired I get, they know this about me, the, uh, the more I'm unable to control my emotions. Hey, what can I say? It's an emotional faith that we have. It's a great salvation that is ours. But uh, there have been times also, <clears throat> in, as a minister, where... Uh, I've been caught, as it were, in preparation of a sermon on God's Word. And one time I remember specifically, it was a Good Friday, and a Good Friday service. And I was in my study, alone. Studies back then, most of the times, have been a corner of the bedroom. I now have in our house where we live a study, which is actually a study, for which I am very grateful. 
you, you ministers remember those days where a desk in the corner serves as your study. And Jane needed to get something or speak to me and, and came into the room, into my study, and she caught me crying like a baby. Because as I was preparing the message <coughs> for that Friday afternoon service, I was looking at the 19th chapter of John, and I would invite you as I relay this incident and this story to open, turn your Bibles to that chapter. And for a brief moment, moment, the Lord was gracious and kind to me. You know what he does after he saves us? He at times pulls back the, the curtain, the veil, that so often hides the remaining sin in our lives. And he lets you, he lets me, he lets us get a glimpse of ourselves such as we are were it not for his work uh, in us and for us. He lets you see a, a glimpse of the sin that remains. And that's basically what Jane uh, had walked in on. And she, and she uh, caught me in that state, as it were. But it's a wonderful time. It's, 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 it's difficult. I, I trust you've experienced it. It's painful. But it's also very therapeutic. Because as he's merciful to us, and he um, peels away the veneer, of self-sufficiency or self-righteousness and he lets you see yourself for what you really are. He doesn't do it that you would wallow in that but also that you could see Christ and see him for who he was. That, that morning, the words of C.S. Lewis's poem, uh, I believe the title of the poem is As the Ruins Fall, if you can come across that poem, I was trying to for this morning. I can't remember where I read it. I don't have access to it now. But I remember the first line of that poem by Lewis. It starts out by saying, All this is flashy rhetoric about loving you. I've never had a selfless thought since I was born. And that's kind of what I was feeling that morning. But I was feeling in the context of the king that we are to behold. The one who was lifted up not as, humanly speaking, he deserved. He deserved all glory, laud, and honor. But because he was obedient to the will of the one who had sent him, and because he had come for this purpose, he was lifted up on a tree. He was lifted up to draw all men unto himself. And we pick up, we, re we renew the theme, Behold your king, that we started in our first hour in John the 19th chapter. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again saying, Hail, O King of the Jews! And they struck him in the face. Once more Pilate came out and said to the Jews, Look, I am bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. When Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, Here is the man. As soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, Crucify! Crucify! But Pilate answered, You take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. The Jews insisted, We have a law, and according to that law, he must die because he claimed to be the Son of God. When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid, and he went back inside the palace. Where do you come from? He asked Jesus. But Jesus gave him no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me? Pilate said. Don't you realize that I have power either to free you or to crucify you? Jesus answered, You would have no power over me if it were not given, you, given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free. But the Jews kept shouting, If you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. When Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judge's seat at a place known as the Stone Pavement, which in Aramaic is Gabbatha. It was the day of preparation of Passover week, about the sixth hour. 
Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. But they shouted, Take him away. Take him away. Crucify him. Shall I crucify your king? Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar. The chief priest answered. Finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. Thus far, the reading of God's word. We see, perhaps, the inevitable end of the story, uh, which we were starting in 1 Samuel, the 8th chapter. Because from the very day of the inception of the kingly office, the Lord went to Samuel and said to him that he should give them what they're asking for. Because it is not you they are rejecting, Samuel, but it is me. There was a rejection of the Lord as king from day one of the office of king. But remember, the people had an evil, evil motive in asking. The request in and of itself wasn't wrong. But it, what it revealed about their heart was very wrong. But the Lord meant it for good. The king would come. And the king would stand and take the place of judgment that God's people deserved because of their wickedness. And in that, the king would purchase salvation for his people. This is a wonderful gospel that we've come to know as our own. It's a glorious gospel that the Lord gives in contrast to the king who would take. You remember we read from the 8th chapter there the charge, the warning that Samuel solemnly gave the people, but they would not hear of it. The coming king would be one who would take. He would take uh, of your... In verse 9 of chapter 8, he will take your sons and make them servants. But the king of kings, the Lord Jesus Christ, comes to give. Acts of the 5th chapter, verse 31 says, God exalted him, that is Jesus, to his right hand as prince and savior, that he might give repentance and forgiveness of sins to Israel. The human king, who would lead not under and unto the authority of the king of kings, would take not only uh, sons, but he would take daughters to make them his servants. But the king of kings comes to, to give. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him, John in the first chapter tells us. But to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave. He gave the right to become children of God. The human king would take. He will take the best of your fields, your vineyards, and your olive gardens. But the king of kings will give. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever should believe in him shall not perish but have eternal life. The human king would take. He will take the tenth of your wealth and give it to his bureaucrats. But the king of kings will give. All this, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says, all this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. He will take your servants, the human king, Samuel again, he will take your servants to be his own, as well as the best of your cattle and your donkeys. But the king of kings comes to give. Galatians 1, verse 4. Jesus, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age, according to the will of God the Father. And then that section of the warning from Samuel concludes, you yourselves will become his slaves. Galatians 2.20 I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who did what? Who loved me and gave himself for me. So we see the glorious contrast in this king, the gracious king, the king who administers his office in righteousness and truth. The King Jesus. The one that we have to behold as our Lord and as our King. The one that we have to uh, come to personally and individually. At the foot of the cross. And see that he did that because of our rebellion. Because of our sinful inclinations. That God loved us in that we were yet enemies. Christ died for us. According to Ratios Bonar, and I think you have the uh, quote there in your booklets. Uh, he speaks of the key to a ministry of power if we're going to be able to share our faith uh, effectively to the world. And he writes this, 
Uh, the copy, by the way, given to me. I've spoke, I spoke to you last evening about how it is that the entire context, context not only of my ministry, but of my family itself, is the Presbytery of Southern California of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. Well, I, I want to let you know that my copy on my bookshelf was given to me by Bruce Cooey uh, on the, the, the day of my ordination. He came up and uh, put a copy uh, of the book, uh, A Word to the Winners of Souls, in my hands. And in that book, Bonar speaks of uh, the key to a ministry of power. He writes this. When we can tell our people, we beheld his glory, and therefore we speak of it. It is not from report we speak, but we have seen the king in his beauty. How lofty the position we occupy. Our power in drawing men to Christ springs chiefly from the fullness of our personal joy in him and the nearness of our personal communion with him. The countenance that reflects most of Christ and shines most with his love and grace is most fitted to attract the gaze of a careless, giddy world. Sounds like a world such as our own in this day, does it not? And to win restless souls from the fascinations of creature love and creature beauty. A ministry of power must be the fruit of a holy, peaceful, loving intimacy with the Lord. And that's the key. That's the foundation of personal evangelism and missions. That's the one lasting motive, a, pers- a holy, peaceful, loving intimacy with the Lord. Behold your king. So I asked this morning, do you know this king? Are you jealous for his glory? Are you zealous for the glory of Lord Jesus Christ? Does that permeate all of your relationships with uh, those which God brings into your lives? Is it your heart's desire, because you know him, to make him known to others. Do we live for that? Do we burn for that? Do you know the story of Henry Martin? I have, uh, there are many biographies about Henry Martin. I've chosen, kind of, I put a couple together and also quotes from his journals. I think one of the best ones uh, of a summary form is in uh, a book written by John Piper. And he gives us the summary of the biography of the missionary, Henry Martin, uh, for the uh, young ladies here with us this morning. In a sense, I guess, if this were put to film, I guess it would be fair to say that it would be a chick flick because there's a part of it which is a love story. And it's a pretty amazing love story. It's a love story which Hollywood wouldn't have conceived of and design uh, and put on the big screen but it's a true love story as you'll hear read the story of Henry Martin he was born in England in February 18th of 1781 his father was well to do and sent him to a fine grammar school as they called them in those days and then to Cambridge in 1797 when he was 16 years old four years later he took the highest honors at Cambridge in mathematics and the year after that first prize in Latin prose for composition. He had turned his back on God as a youth, and during these days of academic achievement, he became disillusioned with his dream. Quoting from Martin in his journals, I obtained my highest wishes, but was surprised to find that I had grasped at a shadow, unquote. The treasure of the world had rusted in his hands. Three things, the death of his father, the prayers of his sister, four things, the counsel of a godly minister and the diary of a fellow missionary, a previous missionary, David Brainerd, brought him to his knees in submission to God. In the year 1802, Henry Martin resolved to forsake a life of academic prestige and ease and to become a missionary. Well, alongside his duties as chaplain, Martin's main work was that of translation. Within two years, by March of 1808, two years after he had left, he had translated part of the Book of Common Prayer, a commentary on the parables, and the entire New Testament into Hindustani, for he was sent to uh, India. He was then assigned to supervise the Persian version of the translation of the New Testament. It was not so well received as the other, and his health gave way in the process. So he decided to return to England for recovery, but to go back by land through Persia in the hope of revising his translation on the way. But he became so sick on his return trip to England 
that he could barely press on. He died among strangers in the city of Tokat in Asiatic, Asiatic Turkey on October 16, in 1812. Henry Martin was 31 years old when he died. Piper writes, what you can't see in this overview of his life is the inner uh, fights and plunges of spirit that make his achievements so real and so helpful to so many others and many other missionaries. I am persuaded that the reason David Brainerd's life and diary and also Henry Martin's journals and letters have such an abiding and deep power for the cause of missions is that they portray the life of a missionary as a constant welfare of the soul, not a life of uninterrupted calm. The suffering and struggle make us feel the supremacy of God in their lives all the more. Listen to him. Listen to Henry Martin and his struggles on the boat on the way to India. He writes, I found it hard to realize defined things. The seasickness, the smell of the ship made me feel very miserable and the prospect of leaving all the comforts and the communion of saints for England. To go forth to an unknown land to endure such illness and misery with ungodly men for so many months weighed heavily upon my spirits. My heart was almost ready to break at this venture. Then on top of all this, there was also the love story to tell. Martin was in love with Lydia Grenfell, yet he didn't feel right in taking her along to India without going before her and proving his own reliance on God and on God alone. But two months after he arrived in India, on July 30th in 1806, he wrote and proposed marriage and asked her to come. He waited 15 months for the reply. In his journal entry on October 24th, 1807, we read, An unhappy day for me. Received at last a letter from Lydia, in which she refuses to come because her mother will not consent to it. Grief and disappointed threw my soul into confusion at first, but gradually, as my disorder subsided, my eyes were opened and reason resumed its office. I could not but agree with her that it would not be for the glory of God, nor could we expect his blessing if she acted in disobedience to her mother. I told you this was a love story like no other love story told. He took up his pen and wrote her on that same day. He uh, wrote in his journal, I'm sorry. Though my heart is bursting with grief and disappointment, I write not to blame you. It was to Lydia. The rectitude of your conduct secures you from censure. This guy was a regular Cyrano de Bergerac, wasn't he? Uh, seriously, though, such honor for the Lord, such zeal for his glory, and such pure love for the one that he would have as his bride in those words. The rectitude of your conduct secures you from censure. Alas, my rebellious heart, what a tempest agitates me. I knew not that I had made so little progress in a spirit of resignation to the will of my father. For five years, he, Martin, held out hope that things might change. A steady stream of letters covered the thousands of miles between England and India. The last known letter that he wrote two months before his death, again, August 28, 1812, was addressed as usual, My dearest Lydia. It closed, Soon we will have occasion for pen and ink no more, but I trust I shall shortly see thee face to face. Love to all the saints. Believe me to be yours forever. Most faithfully and affectionately, Henry. Henry Martin never saw her again on this earth. But dying was not what he feared most, nor seeing Lydia what he desired the most. His passion was to make known the supremacy of Christ in all of life. Near the very end, he wrote, whether life or death be mine, may Christ be magnified in me. If he has any work for me to do, I cannot die. Those well-known words were Martin's. Christ's work for Martin was done. He had done it well. His losses and pain made the supremacy of God in his life powerful for all time, for us today. I would only add to Piper's summary of his life and ministry and how it encourages us 
in our zeal to make Christ known. Uh, these words from Henry uh, Martin's journals and diaries. They were written shortly after he had arrived at Calcutta. When he had recently arrived, he watched people prostrating themselves before pagan images and heard someone tell of a vision of Jesus bowing before Muhammad. And he says, I was cut to the soul at this blasphemy. I could not endure existence if Jesus was not glorified. It would be hell to me if he were so dishonored. Henry Martin knew something of the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ and a a jealousness and a zeal for that glory, did he not? Do you know the glory of Jesus? Are you zealous for that glory? When he landed on the shores of India, he wrote, Here, let me burn out for God. Evangelism needs a definition uh, for our purposes this week. Several have been suggested. One is the definition given by John Knox. Give me Scotland or I die. Evangelism in the short form is to proclaim the gospel. So in 1 Timothy 1.15, here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, sinners of whom I am the worst. In your booklets, down, I think at the bottom of, well, I'm not sure what page. Is it page 7? Probably not. Again, I'm working in two books. But at the bottom of the section, you see evangelism a uh, definition there which I took from a book which is on your reading list and should be uh, uh, read by all of us as we consider uh, evangelism in the perspective of of God's word and God is the great sovereign. The title of the book is Sovereign uh, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God by J.I. Packer. He gives, well actually I've amended his definition just a little bit, (laughs) you know, because I I think I can somehow improve on the definition given by J.I. Packer. I don't know why I I, I should think so. But the definition there you have in your books. Evangelism. To magnify the glory of God by presenting the the victorious Lord Jesus Christ to men and women in order that they may turn from their sinful lives and put their trust in God and through him to confess Christ as their Savior and serve him as their King in the fellowship of of his church. Evangelism also can and should be defined in the words of scripture in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the first verse. Now brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved. If you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. For what I received, I pass on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. A good and succinct definition of evangelism from 1 Corinthians. That That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Now, I wasn't sure how long this um, uh, would go. That's one of the um, challenges in, for me in uh, uh, writing, writing the notes and giving them to you in outline form. So we, we have some extra time, which I would be inclined to not uh, uh, dip into this evening's talk, where I would like to develop these uh, three offices of Christ a little bit more and how it is that they would reflect on our role in evangelism. Uh, Christ as prophet, Christ as priest, Christ as king. Uh, but uh, since we have some minutes, how, how many, Bill? Probably about ten or so. Bef- before uh, we would pause for, for questions, uh, I'd have you turn in your book, let me get the right one here, to uh, the fifth talk, a look at the Great Commission's. Uh, I'll have it here in just one second. Thank you. Page 23. Yeah, I said five, but it's not. It's, it's number three. A look at the Great Commissions. Now, in order to do this, I'll have to be jumping a little bit about the books, but that, that should probably work. Um, I'll just give an introduction. 
to the first uh, of the Great Commission, as we have it recorded in Scripture, which is in Matthew, the 28th chapter. Why don't you turn in your Bibles with, with me to that portion of God's Word. Uh, from verses 18 to verse 20. Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I will be with you always to the very end of the age. We're going to be looking at uh, the Great Commission, or in parentheses there, perhaps we should understand it as the Great Commissions. First, in the book of Matthew, we'll look at the threefold goal of our evangelism, as it's defined there in Matthew 28, um, making disciples, baptizing them, and teaching them. uh, Making disciples, baptizing, and teaching. And what are the implications and ramifications of this threefold goal of the Great Commission as we have it recorded in Matthew 28. Then we will pursue uh, Mark's gospel uh, in the next lecture uh, from Mark, the 16th chapter, where we'll look at the scope of our evangelistic task and the results of evangelism. From there, after Mark, we'll go, of course, to Luke, where we'll discuss the content of, of our evangelism as we have it in the 24th chapter of Luke. Luke 24 and we'll, we'll see how the content also has a threefold part. The death of Christ, uh, the uh, resurrection of Christ, the second section, and that repentance and the remission of sins would be preached uh, in his name. And then after uh, finishing from John chapter 20, uh, a look at the Great Commissions, part four, uh, we would look at the nature of our commission to evangelize, but from the perspective or the angle uh, of John's gospel where uh, Jesus uh, gives or tells of his, uh, his disciples of an, an experience that they need, the experience of Christ's perfect peace uh, before we go, a perfect example that he gives as a model, and then an equipping power to receive the Holy Spirit in our evangelistic tasks. So that's just a quick uh, overview of what we'll be looking at in the days to come, according to the outlines as you have them in your book with there. Matthew 28. We have recorded earlier in in Matthew, in the 26th chapter, uh, when he was there with his disciples, uh, the very beautiful uh, section of God's word, where we're told in verse 30 that uh, after they had sung a hymn together, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Verse 31, Matthew 26. Jesus, then Jesus told them, this very night you will all fall away on account of me, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Well, now in Matthew 28, we have the uh, end of that story. The good shepherd, once stricken, then risen, now shatters the the sheep of his flock in order that they may take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And they could do so securely in the knowledge of the fact that he will never leave them. Again, even in the striking of a shepherd, it is the case that Satan meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And one aspect that we need to see is that we scatter with the gospel. It's, God good, it's God's good that comes out of, uh, as, the, as the overarching, the undergirding sovereign answer uh, to the evil purpose that Satan had intended. The shepherd was stricken, yes, but then raised from the dead and uh, ascended to glory. And that shepherd, once stricken, now scatters his sheep, but with the gospel and in the knowledge of the fact that he is with us even to the ends of the world. I want to begin to examine what is commonly called the Great Commission. We have it in the, uh, 
mandate given in all four Gospels and also in the, in the, in the first chapter of Acts. Each place it in, a diff, in different words and the different words gives us a different aspect of Christ's clear command. So we'll begin by considering the goal of evangelism as found in Matthew uh, 28, 16 to 20. Uh, and really, I, I think uh, I want to close right here because I have in my room uh, some uh, material uh, that I want to draw our attention to. But right now, I'll just kind of whet our appetites uh, by the 17th uh, verse of uh, Matthew 28. Notice what the disciples, the apostles were doing in verse 17. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came and said, all authority, and then the Great Commission. When they saw him, they worshipped him. What was it that the church was doing? Uh, what, were, what were they actively engaged in when the risen Savior, the glorified Lord, gave them the Great Commission? The church was worshiping. And we really need to see that that's where evangelism starts, that's where evangelism leads, and that is the, uh, the foundation of all that we do as Christ's witnesses. Okay, let's close there for this morning. Uh, but have a time of question and answers. There were some good questions in the break. Some of you might want to uh, reiterate those questions and we can ask them or others. Yes. Yes, I will. Bob asked me to slowly repeat the definition. But I need to ask, I could just look, quickly look in the book. Is it not in the books? My bad. It was supposed to be. Bill, nice try. Uh, from Packer? Yeah, it, it, I will gladly do that. Evangelism. To magnify the glory of God. by presenting the victorious Lord Jesus Christ to magnify the glory of God by presenting the victorious Lord Jesus Christ to men and women in order that they may turn from their sinful lives and put their trust in God. And through him to confess Christ as their Savior and serve him as their king in the fellowship of his church. And we'll be fleshing this out in Matthew 28 as we look to it uh, tomorrow morning. Now that's a long and winded definition. It sounds like a seminary definition. It's a good definition. Uh, that's why I gave you the other definitions. Uh, the shorter definitions, evangelism is proclaiming the gospel. Evangelism is, uh, in the words of uh, some who have gone before, uh, give me Scotland or I die. Evangelism is sharing your faith. Evangelism is making known, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the, uh, the gospel. That which is of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was risen. Uh, that he was buried and raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Yes, Bill? That quote is um, mildly modified. I only added one or two things uh, to, to, bring it in, to make it more in accordance with some of the points that I will be making. Uh, but it's really J.I. Packer's definition, which you will find in the book Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. Okay. Yes, Alan? Uh, still trying to formulate this question clearly, so 
Yeah, although I think that was a wonderful job right there. Um, and, uh, and we'll invite anyone also to, uh, uh, to uh, elaborate after my answer. Now, where I was going with that in the beginning, Alan, you're, you're right, and, and you caught the gist of what, of what I was getting at in a, in a stricter sense of that, and therefore the quote uh, from Henry Martin, that when he heard told of a vision that someone had had on the shores of Calcutta, uh, where Jesus Christ, the King of Glory, was fallen prostrate before Muhammad and worshiping Muhammad. And he says, my, my, my soul, my heart was cut at this blasphemy. I couldn't stand to live to see Christ, my Christ, so or thus dishonored. I, I think we need to, to, have, to have that same uh, zeal uh, for the King of Kings as, as, as a lasting motive to go out. I was saying as someone at the break uh, that it, this really caught hold of me as... Uh, in my ministry throughout the uh, land of uh, Tijuana, um, on Sunday, where you know we work diligently, we go door to door, we go uh, in homes and also in the streets, and we invite people to come to church, and we do different activities uh, to have opportunities to uh, preach the gospel, and then personally and privately to share our faith. It might be on a weekend witness where the people on Weekend Witness go into the home of Anna Lilia and she opens up her house and we have the neighbors come in and then uh, hear Tony Smiles' uh, testimony and Pastor Keller's and, and my own uh, in, in many different ways and, and uh, in, uh, trying to make the most of all opportunities we're given. And yet, uh, as I see uh, on Sunday morning, it's still throughout that culture, so I'm told, but certainly in the city of Tijuana, a day not to worship the Lord, not to sanctify the Lord's Day, uh, and to remember the Sabbath, uh, the fourth commandment. But it's a, it's a shopping day. And the everywhere, the ubiquitous tianguis. A tianguis means like a, so, a swap meet. And you go back in the hills to pick up a family, which asked if you could do that very thing. I'm not sure where your church is. Could you pick us up for, for Sunday this morning? We'd like to, um, to uh, go to church with you and be at your church. And you go back and you find their house and you knock on the door only to realize that they forgot all about the fact that... The, that uh, they'd asked you to come pick them up and the reason they'd forgotten was they went to do their shopping. And your heart breaks, but then you're driving back to church with an empty van and you see these mile-long um, swap meets, swap uh, van after van after van with their wares unloaded and their tents set up and selling everything and literally thousands upon thousands of people who are running after these things that the Gentiles do. They have that opportunity to buy produce, or diapers or whatever it might be and to get it cheap because Sunday morning is shopping day. And, and uh, as I was putting this in perspective, I was uh, reminding myself, why is it that my heart should ache? Why is it that my heart should break when I see this, you know, this incredible turnout, a sea of people on Sunday morning and churches which are, are not filled, there's such a sparse attendance. And the reason I should be is not, not for any reasons of vain pride, but because of the glory of the Lord God, the triune God, and he's being robbed of that glory because they don't run back to give him thanks that he has healed them and saved them and to do so in the context of Lord's Day worship. Um, but at the same time, uh, going from that to the question behind your question, also not just this almost weak and impotent Christ that uh, uh, the, the, the Lord knocking at the door of your heart, in my context, is the perpetually crucified Christ. Affixed to the cross. So you have this image, this idea, which is because it's, it's, it is um, uh, ripped from its context of the rest of the story, it becomes then a blasphemous or an idolatrous uh, half story. It's not the Christ of the gospel, where he's done all he can. He's, he's, affi he's affixed upon the cross. That's the, the supreme example. He's done all he can, now you have to do the rest. This certainly is not the gospel that the scriptures speak of. It's not the living hope that we talked about last night because it would be based on something in addition to what Christ has done once for all. So yes, this nature of the kingdom which has come in Jesus Christ 
should be an element of, of our teaching, of our preaching, and the hope that we have. And I think tonight is, is when it enters into our lecture that as kings, be we old <coughs> uh, or young, uh, we go in with our heads held high because we know that as kings, as queens, as kings in, in that office in the, in the broader sense, we have something because of Christ that the world needs, that they don't have and they, don't, and they can't have. But by virtue of the fact that we get there, uh, the situation, the whole dynamic has changed. There should be an enthusiasm dare he use the word, there should be an optimism, uh, optimism about uh, our going and the very fact that we're there uh, as we go. Um, any follow-up? Yeah, well, good. And please share with us when you do because those are important uh, uh, applications of this, of this whole theme. Behold your king. Any other questions? Yes. The question is, boy, it's going to be hard to repeat these questions. But, um, because of the fact, uh, if I can paraphrase, that uh, people in themselves don't seek the Lord. And they don't seek the things of the Lord. Unless the Lord is working in their hearts by his spirit to make seekers out of them wherein he then says, seek the Lord while he might be found. But uh, in last night's talk, uh, that, that they would come asking questions, uh, it was the, the question here was that unless the Lord was previously working in their heart, they, they wouldn't be asking the question in the first place. Well, to that first part of your question, I would say yes, yes and no. Uh, yes, in the sense that if the question is one of, of, of true sp uh, spiritual, in the biblical sense, longing and desire, then you're right. It would not, they would not be asking the question in the first place unless the Lord is awakening uh, of, and, uh, faith in their hearts and working in them. Of course, that's why we get very excited uh, when, when the question comes. But also we were acknowledging in the break that we live in a day when so very many people are not only asking, it's not only that they are not asking the question, but they really don't want any part of the answer. And you gave the example of your husband who on his job, he's been there for how many now, 10 years? Where, yeah, having identified himself as a Christian, having spoken where and when he can about the gospel, uh, and we do, we use whatever means we can. We might want to ask if we have permission to start a lunchtime Bible study there at work, whatever it might be. Although at the same time, we have a member of one of our churches who, because he shared his faith in the context of his research job um, in, uh, I think it was SDSU, uh, was uh, called to task. And his boss came down on him and he was um, uh, accused and he was made to go to sensitivity training if he wanted to keep his job because he dared talk about Jesus Christ on the job. This is, as we were saying, it's the topic non grata it's in, in, in the secular world in which we live. This is the one thing, you know, you, we can't be talking about religion. Well, do we do it anyway? And the answer is yes, we do it anyway. We go anyway. We look for, for uh, all occasions. Uh, we look for a way. Some of the questions might be posed to us in a spirit of hostility and anger. I, I closed uh, uh, yesterday evening by the fact that there is not only a precondition and there's not only a content, but there's a caution about our answer. We need to be careful because some of the times the answer, uh, questions will be somewhat aggressive uh, in, in their very nature and thrust. Now, I think, and I'm in agreement with those who say, that we uh, could also see the Lord's handiwork in that um, kind of uh, aggressive question, the way it is posed. Because it might be the case that God is working in their hearts and the very reason that they're angry is because they're, they're um, bucking and they're kicking and, and the Lord is working in their hearts. So we can get excited about that opportunity too. Um, but uh, what, what do we do? Well, the authority uh, of going with the gospel is not our authority. It's the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ, and he tells us to go. So we always have that 
overriding mandate, and and we would we would go in, in all contexts. Now about that, there are some practical considerations. I think it's important for the Christian to be careful, for instance, that you're not uh, uh, using time which is not your time to use as you go with the gospel. I speak of the job uh, scene, for instance. It, it's critical that as Christ's witnesses, we not be thieves. And if we're being paid to do one job and we're not doing that job, uh, that, that job is at the expense of, you know, we're sharing our faith, but on company time, well, then we're not really uh, setting apart Christ Jesus as the Lord of our hearts. We, we, we need to live a consistent and obedient lifestyle in all things, but then um, also look for uh, perhaps during break or lunchtime or whenever it might be, the appropriate occasion to speak to our co-workers of Christ. Uh, I had a job in sales for two years before I went to Westminster. I had a number of jobs, as a matter of fact, uh, being a, a, a driver in a, for a moving van, Allied Van Lines. But the one in sales was particularly interesting. I got uh, m- mostly hostile reactions from everybody uh, in the different departments, receiving, shipping, sales. And I went through the departments in those two years they bounced me quite, uh, around quite a bit. And uh, uh, per- perhaps because I, I was talking about the Lord in the different departments, they were, were eager to get rid of me. But I will uh, give you a story from my own personal experience about the one who, who was most hostile to the message that I had to share. And, and it, it became evident uh, that he was hostile not only to Christ and not only to the gospel, but just kind of a hostile, angry old man, cantankerous and, and hostile to so many. And at one point, I confronted him uh, about some of the things that were being said because I think it was inappropriate, out of, out of order, and unfair to the person who wasn't there. And of course, in the next breath, incurred his wrath in no uncertain terms and very clear words, which can't be repeated here. So he just kind of, you know, just lit into me and went up one side and down the other. Um, but I want you to know that that very same man came to me as I was leaving this job and I had announced that I would, that I would leave and leave him for the purpose of entering seminary and actually gave me a farewell gift and sought to speak to me. Now, as best I know, he never repented. He never committed his life in faith to Jesus Christ. But there was real victory there that I tried to patiently and carefully, but at the same time clearly, uh, make Christ known to this man, and he at least sought some terms of peace upon my departure. The time is up. I'm getting the signal from the... My watch tells me the same, Bill. Let's then uh, close. And are there any instructions before we go? What time is lunch? Lunch is at 12, but be sure to take up your children. Don't forget your kids. <laughs> and, and Mark?